Yep. We're on. There's the music. The audience can hear it. You guys can. Tax the rich, feed the poor, tell there are no rich no more. Love, just love to change that old world. Well, it's changing pretty fast right in front of us. That's kind of one of the things we try and stay on top of here and help you stay on top of and help all of us analyze and understand and maybe even retain and get a little bit more sanity in this crazy, crazy world that we all live in today. Uh, we always look forward to the Friday edition of the Radio Ranch. Uh, because we have Brent Winters on for many years now, six or seven years, Brent. I don't know how long it's been. It's been a long time. I kind of wish I knew that, actually. But uh, today's date stamp on this Friday edition, and Brent is with us, uh, is the 21st of May. So it's 521-21. Does that one sound ominous? 521-21? Maybe not. I don't think 21 is one of their big numbers. Anyway, that's our date stamp, and Brent's with us and happy to have him. And uh, just a ton going on. Now, Brent's traveling, I guess. So uh, you were up early. We were talking about it right before the show kicked off. So what you got on your mind this week? What's gone on in the last week that you've been noodling on, Brent, that you kind of said, boy, when I get on there Friday, I think I want to talk about that. Well, I've been noodling on the sons of God that saw the daughters of men, and they thought they were attractive. And they took unto them wives, and their offspring were men of old, mighty men, men of renown. Or in the Hebrew text, it says by the letters, men of the name. And as I, as I flesh that out, I'm trying to more and more. I've been wrestling with it for few decades well many really even since i was pretty young and i've gotten deeper and deeper into it there's some people that have made a living a good living promoting that idea about genesis 6 and what it means trying to think of the name of that that'll come to me later but i do believe people ask what is that there for that's genesis chapter 6 <laughs> what is that there for and I believe it's there for an important reason. I believe it sets the stage for the rest of history. Not to mention, of course, initially, the flood of what we call the flood of Noah. And then what happened after that. And I do believe it all comes down to the reason for the flood and the reason for the string of events, the concatenation that has happened and continues to happen, goes back to the sons of God being the daughters of men and then birthing to them men of old, men of renown. Now, that's a, it's hard to put that into good English, men of old, men of renown. But when I was back, oh, been uh, 25, 35 years ago, I remember when I ran across this, I had a, had a Latin dictionary. It's the classic standard Latin dictionary by, I believe it's Cassell, C-A-S-S-E-L. And I was looking something up 
And uh, I ran across the word minos. Minos. And I after reading about minos, and then it said minotaros. And I got to reading about Minotaros. And Minotaros was from the Isle of Crete. From the Isle of Crete. And he was a creature. He was a, what the Greeks would call a hero. A hero. And hero, oh, some I had somebody just text me, said, I have that dictionary right here. And they didn't say it that way because they don't talk hickey, but... I have that dictionary right here on my shelf, Cassell's. See, yeah, that's it. That's the one I had, and it was discarded back when I was a military man. When the, the base, the base uh, library discarded it, I got it. But it, they got a better one. That's the standard. Anyway, Minotaurus, if you have that dictionary, somebody just said they did, look up Minotaurus. Minotaurus was the lawgiver of Crete, the Isle of Crete, which is south, south of uh, Greece proper in the Mediterranean. And Paul the Apostle, in his epistle, uh, mentions Crete, and he says there's some pretty rotten people, even their own poet, and he quotes one of their own poets, and he says, there's, <laughs> the, the old English translation said, all Cretans are, are liars and slow bellies. Slow belly. That's what that word really means. It means slow belly. It means uh, glutton. It means uh, people who practice, how do they say that fancy? It's an English word, geromandism, where you just don't stop eating. Eat anything you want. You get to be fat and slobby. Well, that's what it says to these Cretans. And they had a lawgiver. His name was Mino Taurus. Well, Taurus, in the Latin tongue, means bull you know yeah that's right and somebody just texted me said half bull half man messaged me half bull half man well taurus minotaurus was half bull and half man he was the lawgiver of crete now a lawgiver is not somebody who just gives law like god gave moses the law on mount sinai that that's not although god is lawgiver that's not the office of a lawgiver to hand over a a set of statutes. That's not it. A lawgiver in the ancient world, and yet today, if we would apply our minds to it, is the final decider of right and wrong in individual instances from whose decision there is no appeal. And that part about from whose decision there is no appeal is ultimate, because whoever has the power of final decision and there is no appeal from that decision is the one that controls everything. Everything. People say, well, the Supreme Court of the United States has that power. No, they don't have that power. They can make their decisions, but there's nothing in our common law tradition that says that the executive branch or the legislative branch or has to follow their decisions, has to enforce their decisions. The president, our law does not bind the president to enforce everything the Supreme Court says or anything. We don't want to. And our law does not bind Congress to recognize what the Supreme Court has said or done. Supreme Court of the United States, according to our tradition of religion, law, and government, which is called our common law, our law of the land, does not 
make the Supreme Court the lawgiver, the final decider of right and wrong in individual instances from whose individual instances, that means individual cases, you see, from whose decision there is no appeal. Brent, can I put in it for the audience that may not know this, an example of what you're talking about? Okay. Sure. I think I like one of the that. premier, and I'm sure there's more, okay, but this is one I yep. do know about. When Andrew Jackson vetoed the Second Bank of the United States, they got it to the court in some way, shape, or form, and the Supreme Court said, yes, you can have it. And he and what was uh, Jackson's response? Let them enforce it? Yeah, now they've made their decision. Let's see if they can enforce it. And, of course, our common law tradition doesn't give the power of enforcement or the means of enforcement to the courts so they can act in equity and tell the bailiff or the judge to do this or that and uh, that's there, there is a limited power in equity and that is necessary in the right circumstances but it's not a, a power to enforce the decisions across their jurisdiction it's not there never has been there and, and uh, is not supposed to be there well yeah jackson did that he also said when they removed the it wasn't just the Cherokees. There were a lot of tribes. The tribes that lived where I'm from in the Wabash Valley, the Kickapoo and the and the Miami and the Tamaroa and the Kaskaskia and the Illini and the Shawnee, they were all removed to Oklahoma too. And the decision that Jackson made to do that was because he knew, and I think he was right, that their culture would not preserve itself. They would not preserve their culture if they stayed where they were they'd be overrun were they yeah they were overrun all right well anyway uh, he moved them and uh by the way half of them wanted to go over half of them wanted to go and the other half didn't or maybe less than that most of them wanted to go but uh the supreme court some do-gooders got in involved some christian missionary group of some kind and went to the supreme court and jackson said well uh, of course they said you can't do this you can't remove these indians and Jackson said, well, you've made your decision there, too. Let's see if you can enforce it. Of course, they couldn't. Our common law gives the power of force to the executive branch. It doesn't give the power. That doesn't mean that the uh, judicial branch or the legislature, Congress, has to agree, agree with the executive branch either. Matter of fact, we don't want them to do that. We want them to be in constant, never-ending tension. I like to say our common law government is a perpetual, never-ending Mexican standoff. And if you don't know what a Mexican standoff is, you need to go watch the movie The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. That And the final gun battle of that movie was a classic Mexican standoff. There were three, three men stood around in a perimeter. It was a three-way gunfight. Is what it was. Well, that's what our common law government is. It's a three-way, never-ending battle between the executive, the legislative, the judicial, and they all, they all hate each other. And that's the way we want it. And that's what Madison said in the Federalist Papers. We're, we want that. Because as long as they're fighting with each other, they'll leave us alone. If you're going to have governments, you've got to occupy them with hating one another. And matter of fact, Madison even said... You know, this, uh, men aren't angels. And uh, because men aren't angels, when they get into government, they're going to be selfish. Oh, they're going to be terrible. They're non-productive. They're selfish. We're facing the danger. As And Washington said this, government is like fire. It's a dangerous enemy. 
or a dangerous friend. <laughs> yeah, right, a fearful enemy and a dangerous friend. Well, we got to have government, but if we don't keep government in the sack and keep the lid on and get out of their jurisdiction, we've done that. We've done that. It's happened to us now. Well, and it, coming back to the point, we were talking about the sons of God that saw the daughters of men. And this, I noticed, of Minotaurus of the Isle of Crete, he was a half bull and half man. Now, whether or not he just had the, a bull's head sitting on his shoulders to make himself look that way, or he really was half bull and half man, We'll never know, but it's my studied opinion that he was really half bull and half man. Why do I say that? Well, because I noticed when I got to reading about him in that dictionary, Castles, I got to reading about him and I got to putting together the dates and I said, now wait a minute. Minotaurus, the lawgiver of the Isle of Crete, half bull, half man, Taurus, remembering the bull fights in the Latin-based languages like Spanish, they say, Toro, Toro. Well, that means bull, bull. Well, Taurus is the same word in Latin, Minotaurus. Well, I got to looking and I saw that he, Minotaurus, lived at the same time period just before the flood of Noah. Minotaurus, the lawgiver of Crete, lived in that antediluvian world before the Noahic flood. I said, now, wait a minute. Oh, if he lived then, that's also the time of the, and it is the time of what we call Greek mythology. Greek mythology. Now, over in Greece, uh, forever, they've taught mythology and their schools to the children. But it's a uh, note to recognize that when they teach mythology over in the Greek part of the world, ancient Greece and the that area over there yet today they do not teach it as fantasy they teach it as history they do not teach mythology of the greeks as fantasy they teach it as history why because they believe it's history now here's another point to make that we call it greek mythology well the word greek is not an english word it's a grecian word of course it's just uh, their word not ours and the word muthos myth that's not our word either. That's their word, myth. Now, the word myth is used throughout the Greek Newer Testament of the Bible. The last 27 books, Paul the Apostle says often that the things that were hidden are now revealed. A myth is not something that's hidden. He uses the word myth in the Newer Testament, as all of the Greek tongue does, to, re, to uh, denote that which was hidden, but is now laid bare, was hidden. Um, the word myth means that which was hidden, but is now laid bare. The mysteries, it's, uh, that's the same word, mystery, myth. That's a Greek word. It means what was hidden is now laid bare. So mythology is not something that's hidden. It's something that was hidden, but is now laid bare and has been for centuries, well, Minotaurus, see, this is what tipped me off. This is, this is how I got my nose under the fence, and I began to root around like a hog, and pretty soon I was under the fence and on the other side, and it all opened up to me to a great degree. I say all. I, there's a lot of things I don't understand, but I understand enough of it now. Well, 
Greek, these, uh, the heroes of the Greek, heroes, they called them heroes. Hercules and, and, and Orion and Uranus and all those. Well, those were the Titans. Now, the Titans are very popular today, although I didn't find this out till this morning. I ran across, found out there was a movie in 2000, 2010 called The Clash of the Titans. And then there's a television series now on called The Titans, and it's a regular series. This is a, a rendition of Greek mythology, of course, with a lot of literary license in it. But the Titans are those heroes of Greek mythology. Well, again, coming back to the ancient tongues, what's a hero? A hero, he, the hey, the Semitic tongue, which is the first tongue, the Semitic tongue, an ancient Semitic tongue. Hebrew is Semitic, Arabic is Semitic, uh, Aramaic is Semitic, and there are about a dozen others. But those tongues, they are, the Semitic tongue is the first tongue of mankind. Now, how do you know that, Brent? Well, because... When you go back to the Genesis account, the Genesis account, which is the only account of an eyewitness account, by the way, that we have, eyewitness, yeah, God himself was there, he saw what happened. All the other accounts around the world don't profess to be eyewitness accounts, this one does. And he gives the account, and he does word plays, so he says things like, um, I made you Adam, I made you, and I'll call you Adam because I took you from Adama. In other words, I'll call you clay because I took you from mud. It's a play on words, and there are a lot of them in the Hebrew tongue. The Semitic speakers like plays on words. Well, those plays on words that are key to understanding the text and the narrative, they couldn't be possible if Semitic wasn't, Semitic tongue wasn't the first tongue of those early days of mankind, of, of the Adamic race. So that's why I say the Semitic tongue is the first tongue, and I think you can play that out in linguistic etymology, too. You can see, you can see that the Latin arises from the Greek. You can see that the Greek arises from the Semitic tongues, and the Ethiopic and the Coptic arises from the Semitic tongues. Well, the Semitic the Semitic word is hero. Hero is not a Greek word. It is a Semitic word. That means it's a Hebrew, Arabic, Aramaic kind of a word. And he means, that's the definite article, it means the. He, that's the definite article in the Semitic tongue Hebrew. The only difference is in some Semitic tongues like Aramaic, the definite article is on the tail end of the word instead of the front of the word. It's an olive on the tail, but it's, it's still an aspirate. It's just a ha sound. Well, he means the, and ro means shepherd. Hero means the shepherd. Listen, Jesus Christ wasn't just spinning off words when he says in John chapter 10, he says, I am the good wholesome good shepherd. That was a slap into the face of all false religion. All false religion, which includes everything except the one that the one that we render back to him personally by name, his name. There is no name under the skies given whereby men must be saved. Well, 
heroes. These are Greek. The Greeks say, oh, we got our heroes. Nimrod of Babylon, the emperor of Babylon, the first true emperor of the world, said, I'm a hero. He called himself the shepherd. Hero. And Jesus Christ said, no, you're all wrong. I am the hero. There is no other me and no other me and no more. That's it. Well, these Greek heroes were uh, fathered. I begin to put this together with Genesis chapter 6. That's what I'm driving at. Gen I'm speaking from memory. I might pull it up here so I can read it more particularly. I can read it from the winterized version. You ought to get a kick out of that just for fun or giggles. Let's see if I can get it up. No, it's scrolling. I can't do it. So I'll just talk until it stops. It may not stop. It's been doing it for quite a while. Trouble with computers. Well, it says the sons of God saw the daughters of men. And they saw that they were kind of good looking. Matter of fact, it says there, it uses the word, I'm trying to remember. Oh, maybe I've got that Hebrew text up here. I can tell you which word that is. I, well, maybe not, but I, it uses a word that means it's translated usually fair. Oh, here it is. Oh, I got it. Uh, the Let's just go. I've got it on verse 4. I've got to go back a couple of verses. Uh, and it came to pass. It starts out, Genesis 6-1 starts out with, and it came to pass, and the winterized version says, and it happened. And that's what it means. It happened. It came to pass is too many words. It's not by the letters. It means that, but why not just try to make it as much by the letters, word for word, as you can, if it's possible. And here it is. And it happens. And it happens. It's happening because the red clay opened up to burgeon upon the ground's faces. That's what it says. And it happens because the red clay opened up to burgeon upon the ground's faces. Now, this word happens occurs over 3,000 this Hebrew word occurs over 3,500 times in the Older Testament. I disremember the exact number, but it's a, it's a load. Matter of fact, I, can't, I don't imagine there's any other word that occurs more often. It's a verb. And in English, it means happen, occur, befall, that kind of an idea. It's the only... It's a verb, it's a verb, and it's a verb, though, of undefined action. It's a, and it happened. Well, what's the action here? He's telling us there's action. It happened, but what happened? Well, you've got to look at the context to see what it was that happened. Be tied, befall, occur, or happen. I translate it those four ways. If it's a good thing, something happens good, I might, I might say be tied. If something happened that's bad, I'd say befall. If something just happens, like here... Eh, it's bad, but he's not saying that. He, so we just say it happens. By the way, one more point about this word. This word that occurs over 3,500 times in the Old Testament, this verb of action, of undefined action, is the name, the covenant name of God. Sometimes people say Yahweh, and no, this is Yahuha. That's the verb. And what it means is he happens. That's what <laughs> He's the one that makes it happen. 
And he's the one uh, of which it happens. It happens of him, from him, for him, back to him, and all that happens is his business. That's the point of his name, by the way. Well, it says here it happens. Well, why did it happen? Well, he was wrapped up in it. That's the point, I believe, that this verb is used. Because the red clay opened up to burgeon upon the ground's faces. In other words, men were multiplying, and that's the way the King James says it. And it says daughters were birthed to them. Verse 2, and sons of the lawgiver, see, namely, daughters of the red clay, because they are wholesome good. Now, I said a while ago, I wanted to find this verb, I couldn't remember, or this, this adjective. It doesn't say they're good looking. That's not what it's saying here. It says they're wholesome good. They're good on the inside. They're good for something fundamentally. They're not good looking on the out. Well, no, no, I shouldn't say that. They may have been good looking on the outside. Oh, yeah, but that's not what he's stressing here. He's stressing that they're wholesome good on the inside. This is the word when God created the world. He said, it, it, he looked at it, he said, it is good. Tove. Tove. You remember the movie, uh, Fiddler Made a Goof or Fiddler on the Roof or something about that. Jewish fella in Russia that got ran out and came to Chicago back before World War One, and in, in, when the movie begins, the Jewish peasants were walking, and the girls would meet the guys, and they—it was a musical, so they would sing a song, and they'd say "Boker Tov, Boker Tov." Well, Boker means morning, and Tov means good, but it doesn't mean just good. It means wholesome good, on the inside, fundamentally good. It's the word that's used of a tree that produces good fruit. It's not diseased, but it does not stress what they look like. So these sons of God saw the daughters of men, and they saw that they were wholesome good on the inside for something. Well, what were they good for? Well, it says here they took for themselves women. Women. It doesn't, say, it doesn't mean wives necessary from all that they chose and uh, the the uh, sons of God we got to back up and say what they are what is a son of God well a, a son of God is and we say it in English we have the same idiom a son of God is something that God has produced directly in contrast to what he produces indirectly for instance uh, the genealogy of Jesus Christ is in the gospel of Luke it's a long one because it goes from Jesus Christ clear back to Adam himself that's a long genealogy it's all there and it says so and so was son of so and so was son of so and so was son of so and so it's going back back and when it gets to Adam it says Adam was son of what God. He was not the son of any man. He was the direct product of who? God. Sons of God are those that are the direct product of God. Those men, for instance, also, that are born from above, are John calls them, John chapter 3, verse 1 calls them what? He, he calls us that are born from above sons of God. 
Why? Because we were produced. He produced us direct from himself without any, any intermediary. I am son of my father. I'm also a son of God through the new birth of the spirit. Uh, Jesus Christ is called the son of God, again, directly from God, birth through the virgin, through the virgin, but by the direct, the direct conception of the spirit of God. Well, these here, it says, are sons of God. Well, I'll tell you what they are. I don't want to hide the ball, and then I'll say why I know that. These are demons. These are demons. You see, demons are sons of God because they are the direct production of God himself, not indirect. Demons do not reproduce. What are demons? They're angels, angels that are fallen, that have rebelled against God. They are fallen angels, fallen messengers, the fallen agents. That's what that word means, angelos, agents of God. And they are the direct productions of God. As Jesus Christ said, the angels do not marry, nor are they given in marriage. Do not marry, nor are they given in marriage. There's nothing here that says that these creatures, these demons, are married. <clears throat> okay, why do I say that for sure they are demons? Well, in the book of Job, which is the oldest book of the Bible, the oldest book, Genesis talks about the oldest events, but Job is the oldest book of the Bible. And the Bible does not say that demons don't reproduce. It says they don't, Jesus Christ said, they don't marry. Well, demons are angels. And it says here that they are sons of God. Now, sons of the lawgiver. In the book of Job, it says that Satan himself presented himself with the sons of God before God himself. And God himself, they were checking in with him. He said, what have you been doing? See, they're subject to him. They're subject to him. As one fellow said, well, one fellow, no, Martin Luther said, the devil may be the devil, but don't forget, he's God's devil. He can't do anything, but God doesn't let him. God's all-powerful. God's sovereign, not the devil. The devil is a creature of God, as are all angels, all demons, which are fallen angels. But in that book, in the beginning of Job, the writer calls them, these fallen angels, these demons, he calls them sons of God, rightly so, because they are the direct product. I heard a fellow, well, Roger, if you're still awake, I know you're having a, <coughs> you were saying you're not a talker, maybe you're listening today, but uh, Pete Peters, Pete Peters uh, makes the point that the word bastard in the English language doesn't just mean illegitimate, it means mixed blood. It means mixed blood. And he goes on to talk about what that means. But in all events, whether a child is legitimate, in other words, within the bonds of marriage, or illegitimate, outside of the bonds of marriage, born, the child is a direct product of his father. If you want to say something ugly about somebody, and you call him a bastard, 
Well, you're saying he's the direct product of a man that wasn't married to his mother. That's an insult. What you might say he's a son of a <laughs> son of a female dog. That'd be the same kind of insult. Or to be more to be more euphemistic about it, say he's a son of a gun. Well, that means he's the direct product of of uh, copulating on the gun decks of a warship. That's where the sailors used to take their gals when they could, when they had the duty section, and they'd sneak them on board and copulate. And if the ba- and babies that were born of and they're usually on the gun decks because the officers never went there. But also, a uh, you know, son of a gun, son of a. We, we talk. The point I'm making is in English we use the same idiom, and it means a direct product of whatever the son of a gun, son of a female dog. Uh, Son of a traveling salesman, as they used to say of Alexander Hamilton, he was the son of a a Scottish merchant. Maybe it was true. He didn't know who his father was. Well, all these things are direct to to communicate that the child born is a direct, or the thing, the creature is a direct product. Uh, in Jonah, it says that the vine that grew up was a son of the night. That means it grew up in one night. It was a direct product of that night. Well, that's what we got here. Sons of God saw the daughters of men. And the word is used here. Of course, they took these gals and these mighty men. These The Greeks called them heroes. Uh, the Greeks talk about them. But keep in mind what the Greeks say about them. It's not, it's not inerrant. They're talking about something that really happened. But the inerrant, the inerrant, reliable most reliable text is the bible and the bible speaks about these creatures in two other passages namely the second epistle of peter and the epistle of jude but to carry this further peter says that these these creatures that were born of this union this unholy union of demons and women demons and women uh, daughters of of Adam that were born were these mighty men, men of old, men of renown. And Peter, the apostle, tells us that these sons of God, these titans, as the Greeks call them, are tartarized. He uses the word Tartarus, which is from Greek mythology. Of course, he's writing in the Greek tongue, so he uses Greek words, and he calls them He uses the verb form of Tartarus, and he says they are Tartarized. Yeah, the idzo, the eyes, the I-Z emphatic suffix is on the the verb that Peter uses. And it's an emphatic thing to throw people into Tartarus. Well, Well, where is Tartarus? Tartarus, yes, Tartarus is the under world we would say in the old anglo tongue under world under the earth is it any accident i remember i talked to a fellow that had been down in the caribbean i was supposed to introduce him at a meeting the year 30 some years ago and he described for us what he described for us the religion of voodoo the religion of voodoo and what one of the things they do down there, they use an excessive amount of opiates and rum 
the men do, and they plant a pole in the ground. Now, this is the maypole, the maypole of our northern European world and our culture. Uh, the maypole is worldwide. Why? Because it came from Babylon. That's why. And when people scattered from Babylon, they took the Babylonian religion, law, and government with them. And so the Druids and the Germanic tribes, uh, they had what they called the maypole. When I was a boy growing up, we had a maypole at school. Well, that's how strong these traditions are. And I think back on that now. They still have a male maypole there in Clark County. Every, every election, they put up a maypole. And all of the candidates for office of the Republican Party is down at a little little settlement down on the Wabash River called uh, Melrose, a settlement down there. And they all the politicians that are running for office, Republicans, uh, nail their their little signs with their names on that maypole, and then they set that thing up. It's it's uncanny to me, almost unbelievable that we've maintained that all these centuries in various forms, not even really understanding most people where it came from. Well, these, these people down the Caribbean, of course, they're half French and half, half black and African and who knows what else, all Indians. They speak a Creole language and they practice voodoo and they plant this maypole on the ground and the deeper they plant it, the better because they think they have a better chance of the demons coming out of Tartarus and coming up these maypoles, and then they get drunk and take opiates and dance around it like banshees and demons, screaming and hollering and falling on the ground and having fits and being possessed and, and barking like dogs and hogs and or grunting like hogs. And then they rub their backs up against this pole in the ground, and they, they scream and holler and ask the demons to come up the pole and mount them. That's a French way of saying it. And they speak this, this Creole tongue, and they say they want the, they ask these demons to mount them. They, they're, they're begging demons to possess them. That's voodoo. That's, uh, there's uh, voodoo dolls, dolls are well known, but the foundation of the whole thing is demon possession, and this is the way, but the way they seek to, uh, to achieve it. But the pole stuck down on the ground in the belief that demons are in Tartarus. But, but Peter tell us, tells us they're in Tartarus, in the underworld. God has chained them. Now these are the sons of, these are the sons of God, the creatures of God, the fallen angels, the demons that saw the daughters of men. They are the ones. The mighty men, men of old, men, mighty warriors, men of the name, men of renown, the superheroes. The Greeks have their name for them, call them uh, heroes, yes. Well, they're down on the ground, and they're in coming out. They're reserved, then Jude tells us, they're reserved in darkness, awaiting the judgment of the great day. Some of you may have remembered when you were in church, if you were some in some kind of a Christian tradition, anything from Romanism to Presbyterianism to who knows what else, Methodistism, schisms and isms, and recite the Apostles' Creed, which is a, a, a summary of sound biblical doctrine. It's very short. 
I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was born of a born of a virgin, conceived of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And then it says, He descended into hell. Well, that is a reference in the Apostles' Creed. This is not the Bible. This is a creed, an attempt to summarize biblical truth. It says that Jesus Christ, after after his murder, after he was murdered, that he went, he descended into hell, and then it says he ascended into heaven, to the skies, which he did, the Bible tells us. But he went down to hell. Well, what did he go down to hell for? Hell? Well, that's an, that's an old Germanic word. For The Greeks would say Tartarus, the underworld. The Anglos, the Saxons, and the Danes would say hell. You know, hell is uh, just a hole in the ground. To, that's word meant, but came to be applied to our understanding of the Bible. And hell is the underworld. That's where these creatures are kept. These sons of God that saw the daughters of men. They're not out here running around. No, 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 not at all. But they're kept in chains. And Jude, remember it's in Second Peter and Jude. Yeah, Genesis 6, 2 Peter and Jude. Second Peter and Jude cover pretty much the same material with some variations of details. But Jude says they are waiting the judgment of the great day. And they're not getting out. They don't get a second chance. Why? They are apostate. And he, Jude, cites four examples in his short 25 verses there of apostates. Well, what are apostates? They are those creatures of God, sons of God, that means direct creations of God, that have committed the unforgivable sin. And these creatures have committed the unforgivable sin. What was it? They rebelled against God in full knowledge of who he was. They were right there, right there with him. They're apostate. The other example of apostates put in the same category, these are men, were the 603,548 members of the militia of the 12 tribes of Israel whose carcasses, it says in the New Testament, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness while the nation Israel wandered in the, in the wilderness for... 40 years. Well, what did they do? They flinched. They flinched, but they flinched with full knowledge. Flinched to what? They flinched to go into the land that God has entrusted to them. He had entrusted this real estate to them under what we would call today a common law entrustment with all the elements of a common law trust. They were only nine days from Egypt. They got there and they flinched. 603,548. You see, the militia of the 12 tribes of Israel was 603,550. There were two men, two men that did not flinch. And those two men were... Shoa was a son of Israel. Caleb was not a blood Israelite. He came and trusted the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and became a part of the nation of Israel. He didn't flinch. He said, let's go in and take it. You know, he was the one getting back to these, these sons of God and these fallen ones. He was the one that whooped in terminal fashion 
the the uh, giants, the Nephilim that were on the mountain that God gave his family to conquer. Now, we could go outside the Bible, and I, I, I can go out and find things written about this event, these titans, that the Greeks call them titans, and the Bible in Genesis 6 here calls them Nephilim. What, well, let me talk about that. Nephilim is the Hebrew word nafal in the third person singular. Nafal means he fell or he falls, more particular. He falls, and the Nephilim, the em on the end, is masculine plural. The fallen ones could be understood, the ones who fell, but more probably it is the fellers, the fellers, the ones that cause others to fall. I remember, I don't hear this much anymore, but when I was growing up, we used to fell trees. And we'd go out in the wintertime and we would fell a big tree that we wanted to get rid of, either out in the woods or along the fence row, a big old oak or something that was making shade along the sticking way out in the field and keeping the crops from getting sun. So we would fell it, F-E-L-L. We'd gird it take axes and gird it. That means you chop a band around it where you get into the, through the bark and into the first layer of wood, chop that all out. That's called girdling the tree. And once a tree is girdled, it's going to die because the sap can't get on up to it. So you cut out that layer that the sap gets. And then when it dies, it just stands there. It's not in the way. It's not in the way. If you cut it down and let the, to let the wood uh, dry out, it's in the way till it dries out. So you just girdle it and it stands up, it's out of the way. And then after about three years, you cut it down, the wood's dry and it's good for firewood. That's what we used it for firewood. And we'd, we'd clean the limbs up, cut them off, and get down to the, after we got the limbs cut, and get down to the log. But uh, in that particular situation, we'd say after when we got it girdled, we're going to fell the tree. Well, it's a, fell is a verb. In English, fall is a verb. And that's what this is here. It's a verb. The Nephilim is a verb. Used as a verb, it's translated and most often understood as a noun, but it's a, as all words are fundamentally verb before they're nouns, action is what governs language without action. You look for the verb and that's the center, especially in Hebrew especially in Hebrew, the Semitic tongues, action, action is the center of, of every thing that happens. I'm looking here to, to see in the Hebrew text, uh, yeah, the Nephilim, it does have a verb form, that's true, but they are those that fell. They are fellers, plural. They're ones who make others fall. Even, and they are also, also the ones that are fallen. Well, they don't get a second chance. And uh, why did they? Why did God allow this to happen? I guess is a question. I'll try to finish up here in a minute because I want to take a breather. And the reason I'm breaking that, bringing this up, because I want to talk about it Sunday at church. And we're to that point in Genesis. We're going through Genesis on Patriot Soapbox on Sunday mornings. And I, uh, I just want to get ideas. If anybody has any more, and they want to bring or questions, they want to bring up 
to say, I think this is a question that needs to be answered. I want to know this. Well, then I would try to maybe find out if I could find out. But why did this happen? Well, of course, everything that does happen, there's that word happen again, everything that happens in all of God's world, God's universe, happens for him to glorify himself. Everything that happens is for the purpose of glorifying him. He says, I set up kings and emperors just so I can tear them down, he says. Not always, but he says, I do that sometimes. Whatever makes me look better, that's what I do. That's the purpose of man. And also what we're to do is to glorify him as the chief end of man, as the old confessions say. Well, why did he do this? Well, the sons of God did this because they knew the Messiah was in the works. The Messiah was in the plan. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right at the very beginning, the proto-angelion, God declared the Messiah was coming. And they, the demons, got together, and the old scratch himself said, we got to stop this. How can we do this? Well, the Messiah has to be has to be perfect, the, the sinless Lamb of God. He couldn't pay for the sins of his people unless he was without sin, without imperfect, imperfection of body, soul, or spirit. And so what we'll do is we'll, we'll enter wicked seed into the stream of Adam's race and pollute it. Wicked seed, and that's what they did. And you find this, here, the key phrase here, Jack, Chapter 6 says, um, and they saw the daughters of men, they are wholesome good. And uh, then it says, verse 4, in those days, the fellers, I call them fellers, that's the way I translate it, because they're the ones that fall. It says, fellers befell into the land, and all, and then it says, adds this on the end, and also afterward, thus, when sons of the lawgiver came in unto the daughters of red clay, and they birthed for them those mighty warriors who were from the seeable past, mere men, mere men, but of the name. He says, also after that, this happened. Also after that. What does that mean? That means that this eruption of evil, this eruption, this attempt to get the seed of Satan into the race of Adam, to ensure that the Messiah would not, that the, the line of Messiah would be polluted, therefore the Messiah could not come. This happened after that. After what? After the time before the flood. That's my best understanding of this phrase. It seems clear when I read it, and I'm looking at it here again. In those days, what days? Those days before the flood of Noah, the fellers befell into the land. I'm reading from the winterized version and also afterward thus after the, afterward after that thus what well when sons of the lawgiver what's that direct creation of the lawgiver in this case fallen angels demons came in unto daughters of the red clay who's red clay that's adam that's what adam means red clay and they birthed for them those mighty warriors so we have record in the bible of, a, of a, a creature nine and a half feet tall. Nine and a half feet tall, six cubits, it says. Six cubits? Yeah. 
Well, what's a cubit? A cubit's the distance from the tip of your longest finger to your elbow. And on, on almost every person, it's about 18 inches. Oddly so, but true. 18 inches. Well, that's a foot and a half. So if he's six cubits, he's nine and a half English feet tall. That's a big critter. You know, I was standing at the Indianapolis, at the airport in Indianapolis. That's where we either go to Indianapolis, Evansville, or St. Louis. We're kind of in the middle there. And uh, I was in Indianapolis. That's the easiest one to get to, by the way. And uh, I was standing in line with my luggage to check in, and I'm you know, gawking around, and I look to one side or another. I turn around, and I'm looking at somebody's belt buckle. I said, wow. I just stood there a minute looking at this guy's belt buckle right in front of my face. And my eyes went up. I'm way up there above the clouds, it seemed like. <laughs> And uh, there was Larry Bird standing there. And I said, Larry, how you been? He's very friendly, of course. And he knew that I acted like I knew him. He was supposed to know me. He didn't want to say, I don't know you. He just said, well, I've been great. How you been? You know, he acted like he knew me. But that Larry Bird is six feet, nine inches tall. I used to say he was 6'10". I was wrong. He was 6'9". And he's so tall that it, it, it boggles the mind when you stand beside him. Well, Goliath was not six feet nine. He was nine, more like nine foot six, way up there. Then there was another fellow in the Bible we have record of, and we, it tells how big his bedstand is, the bedstead upon which he slept. And it had to be, that from the length of it, you know he had to be right at or almost 15 feet tall, 15 feet. So these critters, these creatures were out there. The, the, and also after that. Well, people say, well, what about the book of Enoch? What about the watchers? Well, the book of Enoch says, when you add it up, that these critters were three, four, four thousand five hundred feet tall. Oh, that's the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch's not part of the Bible, and it's not reliable. Not at all. And for a lot of the reasons we talked about last Sunday, the book of Enoch is not in the original tongue in which it is written. The oldest manuscripts we have of the book of Enoch are only going back to about the 17th century. And they're not in the original tongue. And we have just one or two that are complete and they're, uh, they're inconsistent. They have none of the badges, none of the badges of the preservation that God promised. Then when you look at the text itself, Enoch becomes the Messiah. Well, that makes it a, a false document right there. Chapter 71, Enoch claims <laughs> this angel is showing him all about different things. It's calling, saying that the, the, he'll show the Messiah. Well, chapter 36 to 71 then you get to chapter 71 of en the first book of Enoch, and it says Enoch is the Messiah. Well, that that tells us that it's, it's contrary to the Bible, not part of the Bible. But the book of Enoch talks about these creatures, these critters that were so huge, and also after that. But also after that seems to indicate that these evil creatures continue to want to pollute the race of Adam. They're desperate. Now, also in the, but not to say that everything, there may be things in Enoch that would give us a hint about 
something in reality. It's a historically, it's a historic source, put it that way. It talks about history. And it makes the point, it calls them the watchers. The watchers. Um, that's not in the Bible, by the way, but that's in the book of Enoch. But it talks about these creatures and talks about uh, how they were wiped out. They, they went to war, the clash of the titans, and they were wiped out. That's where the clash of the titans comes from, is from the book of Enoch, and they were wiped out. That may or may not be true. I don't know. I don't know. I just make the mention that the event is something that other people knew about that didn't even have the scriptures. But their rendition of it is contrary to the scriptures, ultimately, so we know it's not that reliable a source. Well, that's what I see in this, and uh, I see that it is a problem today because it because these eruptions, these creatures are still out there. See, the ones that are put in chains are the ones that saw the daughters of men. But were born to these daughters of men, these mighty men, men of old, men of renown, those are the ones that are not in Tartarus, not Tartarized, as Peter says. So we've got in the Bible, Israelite Hebrew cultured men, such as Peter, James, John, Moses, Semites. And they're telling us about this stuff, but sometimes... As in the New Testament, they use the lingua franca of the Roman Empire, which is the Greek tongue. And so they use words that are borrowed from Greeks, the Greek tongue and the Greeks, to say things about them. They're kept in bondage. Oh, Jesus Christ descended into hell. I didn't say why. Why? Because he declared, he preached, he heralded to them the victory. He went down there and said, I told you so, boys. Now know you're doomed irreversibly. Ain't no coming back. I personally will throw you into hell. That's why he did it. He's God. He can say those kind of things. If you don't have any competition, there is no such thing as arrogance. If you don't have any competition, there is no such thing as arrogance. If there's nothing to compare you to, then you're incomparable, and there is no such thing as arrogance. So God is not arrogant. He's the only one, the Godhead, the only three persons that are incomparable, unmatchable, and have no competition from anybody. Well, that's my take on it. If you have comments, I want to hear them, or you think there's something left undone, Somebody talk to me. Roger, are you there? I'm here, uh, Brent, and I I wanted, I think I am. Let me unmute here. Hold, uh, hold on. I got to unmute. I had my microphone muted. That's all right. I thought I, maybe I've been talking to myself. You know, to I know time. I know how it is on this board when uh, nobody's answering you and it's, you're, you're going out into a void, so it's always sure. great to get the echo. Um, I wanted to say about the Smithsonian uh, throwing, admitting that they'd thrown out all the skeletons here a few months back um and and all of the records of these huge huge like you're saying nine and ten feet tall um david uh harvey's on with us and i know harvey and uh, maybe brent remembers david Strait, our friend from now deceased from atlanta who you would have really liked by the way brent um 
he was six foot eight. Yeah, and he was just huge, you know, like you were talking about Larry Bird. But I, if there's anybody else on the board that wanted to uh, throw anything at Bryn or make any comments on the a lot of the information that he's given us is almost a whole hour of uh, this information on Nephilim and all of that history and Crete and all of uh, all the things you've covered. Anybody got a question or a comment or some analysis? Well, not surprisingly. Uh, his term Nephilim, I look at and I consider that it could be broken down into Nephilim or M. And I wonder if Brent has any uh, view on that, that these words are all pressed together to create the Babylonian confusion so that we really don't see what's really encrypted in them. Yeah, well, I don't uh, have any indication that it's no more. It's any more than a verb, nafal, in its fundamental third-person masculine singular form, nafal, which means fall. And it's used throughout the Older Testament to speak of things that have fallen. This, if something falls off the shelf, it's nafal. If somebody falls down, he fell, nafal. Um. If there's something more to it, but no, I've never heard that. Uh-uh. I think I've heard you mention it before, but I haven't found anything in any of the lexicons or any of the material I consult. And I consult quite a bit of material to try to find it. As you know, I'm addicted to words and etymology because I do believe that we can find out more. Well, as, as uh, Trench said, he was the... British etymologist of Greek and Hebrew, the biblical languages, that never went to school, by the way. He studied them all his life, and he wrote several lexicons. But he said, uh, I'm a word man, and I attach the greatest importance to words. And, of course, the reason is, if you don't do that, you will uh, lose your life, your liberty, and your property, or a people will at some point. I'm going to glance here at, at a compilation Oh, here, I could say this. Let me say this about that word. This is true, too. See, Tyndale, William Tyndale, the first man to translate the Bible, uh, almost all of it. I should say all the Bible. Other had, others had tried to translate the Bible into English from the original tongues, the Greek, the Aramaic, and the Hebrew. He got all the New Testament done, William Tyndale. He did the greater part, the important part, the first parts, up through, I believe, up to second kings of the Older Testament, and then they burned him at the stake for his efforts. I like to say today they don't burn Bible translators that much. Right now it's a lot nicer. They're just burning the translations. They do do that once in a while. But uh, William Tyndale translates this word giants. Giants. And that connotation from that word, which is not an English word, it's a Greek word, giant, has stuck and so we have these, this idea from this word Nephilim that these things are big. But the word giant, even in Greek, doesn't mean big. We've attached that meaning to it because of these giants in the Bible. But what the word means, William Tyndale used it, and Gaiatus, Gaiantus, Gaia means land, earth. And Anthus is a word that means to be born. So a giant 
in the tongue than the way Tyndale intended the translation. A giant is one who is earth-born. Born from the earth in contrast to one born from above. The new birth, the Bible says, ana means up. Jesus Christ said you must be anaganao, born from up, from above. Well, he's, Tyndale's point was these were creatures that are born from below, well, by analogy. But that's not, what, that's not a tra- good translation of the word. We should, I think, stick with what the word says. The original tongue in which this Moses wrote this is Nathal, and Nathalim, the fellers, the fallen one. Giants, they were, were they giant? Well, yeah, we find out later they were pretty big. But there's a lot of, a lot of words called translation of words that aren't translations at all. They're not untrue. One of the big instances is for uh, the, the lawgiver, the great lawgiver, is the translation of Elohim is God. God is not a translation of that word. The word God doesn't translate that word. Is it true that he is God? Yes. What is God? Well, it means good. It's the old Anglo word, good. We say good, same word, just double the second syllable, or a second vowel. But uh, is he good? Yes. But that's not a translation. That's just uh, one of his great attributes. And so we use that to identify him. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that's all wrong, but it doesn't mean that. What it means is lawgiver. Elohim. And the Greek, same thing. Taos means lawgiver. It doesn't mean good. There are other words that mean good. Uh, with the winterized version, I try to stick to what the words mean because I believe that's what God wants us to hear. This word, uh, nafal, <laughs> has come to mean a bully, a bully, like Minotaurus, half bull, half man, and it's come to mean a giant. But, no, I don't know. I'm looking here as I speak and just run through it real quick. I don't see any use of that word that would indicate it's anything except to throw down. Here, Second Kings, and, and yeah, Second Kings 3.19 and verse 25 and 6 verse 5, it's used to talk about felling a tree, as I was talking about a while ago, to fell a tree, to make something drop from something, Ezekiel 39 uses it that way. You know, one thing about the, these Semitic tongues, well, let me try another thing here. To fell. Yeah, it's always the same. Of course, if you kill a man, sometimes it's translated slay, but that's translating the result of what the word says. No, it says to, to fell somebody, to be fallen. Well, that's all I know about it, uh, Chris, unless there's something else you want to bring up or a point you want to make. Well, I certainly appreciate your informing us on those intricacies of these words. And the falling from grace or bringing one down from um, the Creator's perfection or attempts to perfect certainly seems to comport with it. And this falling or felling of a tree or a man is a very important concept that I thank you for your enlightenment. Well, Roger, are you still there? I'm oh, right, here, there. right here, right here, right here. Yep, yep, right along. Yeah. Well, 
does anybody else, anybody else out there, is there anybody that wants to make a comment about this passage? I used to listen to, well, it's been 25 years ago, I'd, I got up at 3 o'clock in the morning and I'd be listening to, um, not George Norrie, but um, the other fellow, Art Bell. Art Bell. And uh, he'd have people on that would talk about things like this. And I remember there was one fellow that knew there was a pit out in Nevada or Oregon or someplace that didn't have a bottom. And that would lead to this subject. And I, at the time, thought, you know, we got a place at home. It's called Blue Lagoon. Blue Lagoon. The water's blue. It's along the Wabash River. And nobody knows how deep it is. Nobody's ever found out it's that deep. And to this day, people wonder how deep the Blue Lagoon is. I don't suppose anybody's really spent the money to get the equipment to get down deep enough to find out. You know, you can go down, and people have been down. They tell me our equipment has been down in the Marianas Trench, seven mile deep in the ocean over there in the South Pacific. That's pretty deep. It is. Yeah, but whether or not the Blue Lagoon's that deep, I don't know. But it all comes back to, and one other thing I want to mention, there's a cave in Lovelock, Nevada. Lovelock. Lovelock's out on Interstate 80. Uh, it's not, not real far from Reno, but it's out there a ways. Oh, there's a cave there, about 150 feet long and 35 feet wide. And in this cave has been found giants the skeletons of giants it's not something people talk about much but it's out there in the lake humboldt reason region a lot of artifacts in there that are of the tribes that lived here and uh back about almost over 100 years ago now that when this was discovered uh these um skeletons were discovered and these critters were really big i forget maybe between 10 and 15 feet tall maybe somebody's read about it i don't remember but there's a lot to be said about this it's an important subject and i figured somebody that's listening would have uh have problems now listen, you know, you can go, uh, and the one that's done the most work on it that I've seen is uh, that's readily accessible is Robert Seffer, the archaeologist guy that's on on uh, YouTube that does uh, a lot of that kind of stuff. And he's gone back and pulled out, you know, articles from the New York Times and all of these big major newspapers from the 1800s where they were announcing where they discovered these things. Uh-huh. Okay. Also, Catalina Island, evidently, it was a bountiful uh, receptacle of a lot of those bones. And I think most of them were sent to the Smithsonian. And evidently, as I said earlier, they've admitted in the last six, eight, ten months that they were disposing of them. I don't remember if they dumped them in the ocean or what they did, but they came out and admitted that they've disposed of them. So, obviously, they were here. Well... The University of, of Nevada, back in the 70s, did a study of this cave at Lovelock. And they said, well, yeah, there are bones in there. They weren't 15 feet tall. They were 6 feet tall. And not 10 feet tall as claimed. And then 
during that time in the 70s, they discovered a bundle of bones in a box marked giant bones from in a, a, a cabinet, in a cabinet that the Nevada Historical Site Society building in Reno. But so there's a, a difference of opinion whether or not these bones were really big or whether these giants were really there. But certainly the legends talk about such things. You know, we have, for example, you've heard of the Thunderbird, and people usually attach the Thunderbird to the Navajos. They were the ones that told us about the Thunderbird. But that's not the case, really. The Navajo knew about the Thunderbird, whatever the Thunderbird was. But the most prolific indication of the Thunderbird is painted and has been painted for centuries on a limestone cliff on the Mississippi River. On the Illinois side of the Mississippi, I'm trying to remember the name of that place, but it's a giant painting of the Thunderbird, this creature that was huge, that would fly and pick up men and eat them. That was the whole thing about the Thunderbird. Well, the Thunderbird legend apparently was among a lot of people in North America. Now, these giants of Lovelock Cave were allegedly red-headed, which doesn't indicate that they were any kind of an Indian tribe. Back to you, Roger. Well, hold on just a second. You caught Hey, Roger, can I jump in here? Yeah, you sure can. I wish you would. Okay, Joe from Ohio. Speaking of the giants uh, walking the earth. Okay, let's go back about 30 years. My kids were in grade school and so forth. Well, we attended this church quite some years. And one of the elder's wives, one elder's wife, wanted to have us all view her video back then i think it was a eight track of how that the bible is true and that giants walk the earth and in this video it showed footprints and so forth and proof that yes the bible is true 30 years ago and i remember viewing this thinking hmm well you know probably yeah this was a russian lady they they were immigrants from russia uh, really good folks and so then about 20 years ago I began having Sunday school I was a Sunday school teacher and so forth and I started coming across material like this and it really became a part of me then and so now another 15 or so years post from that it becomes so real it almost grips you to the point of, to the point of, you, you just understand. <laughs> How do you explain a feeling that is so strong? That, uh, and yes, and I remember even 20 years ago, the literature that I was reading said that the Smithsonian Institute hid the skeletons of the giants in their basement. So now that this is coming out, I, you could understand why that they would be disposing of these bones. Well, I suppose they, they don't want people to think the Bible has any credibility. 
Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I hasten that, even though that's true, and it, there are a lot of things that, su- that support the credibility of the Bible, but the Bible itself does not ask for and does not need outside information to support its credibility. That's right. The Bible, yeah, the Bible supports its credibility on its own, and you say, well, that's circular. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. There's never been found anything in history or nature and archaeology that contradicts any statement of fact the Bible has made. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the Bible is self-proving, is what I'm saying. And that's yeah. why men like Van Til, men like Van Til, he was a theologian, he's a suppositionalist, and he said, the presupposition is the Bible's true. If you don't approach it that way, you're wasting your time. Well, yes, that would be like approaching a mathematical table or an equation, assuming that it's not going to achieve your product. If yeah, if you that's right. If you approach well, what people call science, which is nothing but the pursuit of knowledge, <laughs> fancy yeah. word, just knowledge. Yeah. You pursue it on the presupposition that the laws of nature are true. If you don't pursue it, presupposing the truth of the law of nature, well, you're wasting your time. You'll not get anywhere. Matter of fact, even if you, while well, you deny it with your mouth, as many people do, they still depend upon the consistent, consistent application of the laws of nature. It applies itself to a mathematical certainty that we can't even reach. It's so precise. The laws of physics and the laws of chemistry and the laws of astronomy. We, we can predict what will happen. Well, the Bible is the law written. And there's the laws of nature, unwritten, in the nature of creation. And the second volume of God's revealing of himself to his creature, man, is the law written. We call that the Bible. And those two phrases are from our Declaration of 76 having arisen from the Scottish Enlightenment in recognition of those truths. So the Bible is self-proving, self-authenticating, as we say, of legal documents. And we can take judicial notice of what it says, but at the same time, it'll always prove to be true by all other outside evidences, too. That's been my conclusion. If I ever find that the Bible... I can show for sure that the Bible can communicates an error of fact, then the Bible must be rejected. But I've never found that, and I've never read anybody anywhere that has. And I've read plenty of people that say, oh, that can't be true, oh, that can't be true, and they go on and on about how the Bible's not true, but they provide no evidence that it's not true. What do they provide? Logic, reason, well, that friends and neighbors and kin, that won't get you to the truth. I ran across talking to a friend yesterday. He said, well, you know what Martin Luther said? I said, what did he say? Now, Martin Luther was a man who understand, understood logic. He devoted his life to it for a long time, and then he said that's the way to find truth. He rejected that idea. And here's what he said. I'm quoting Martin Luther. Of course, he's speaking in the German tongue, but put into English. He said this, reason is a whore. Reason is a whore. It's a tool. You know, women are 
women and men are worth a lot, but if they misuse their bodies, they're whores. Well, reason and logic is worth something too, but if you misuse it, it's a whore. And in most cases among men, reason and logic is a whore because it tempts men, its elegance, its beauty, its, its rules, it tempts them to trust it. And they do trust it. But even our common law says reason is a whore. It doesn't trust reason. What does it trust? Proof of fact. Or what is fact? That rests on evidence. Fact is what is proven. Proven by what? Evidence. Evidence. Well, so, go ahead. Well, Brent, then, so when you read in the Older Testament about all the whoredoms of Israel, could that be assumed to mean or reason, <laughs> reason would that mean that they were using their own reasoning without question and when you go to the older testament you see it pervasively throughout the text in all the words it's a condemnation of what we would call today scholasticism awesome. reason reason and sh it, it brings men to shame you know, again, reason is a tool, and it's most often turned into a whore. Because fact, as Bolt Hall professor out there at Berkeley, Merriman said, when you stress reason, fact has a way of receding from consideration. That's what you're looking at with the Democrats, the communists, the whole mask and vaccination thing. Facts don't matter. People are just running out oh, fear, and they reason. They're reasoning. Reasoning from what? What goofballs like Bill Gates is telling them. Bill Gates, I, says, Here, Bill Gates says, here's the fact, and they take that fact, and they start their reasoning. Yep. I just walked out of the Lowe's store, and what? one of the girls that knows me, I just walked out of the Lowe's store here where I live, and uh, the, they're still wearing the mask, and one of the girls that works here that I know she kept pointing to her face like for me to put my mask on and I just obliged her with my middle finger I don't care I should uh -huh. not have but I know her and she you know I just you know and here's another question then Brent if I may um, the word happen you said occurs several thousand times in the over 3,500 times in both in both older and newer testament no, not the word happen. The Hebrew word translated happen, translated, and it came to pass, translated, and it occurs. That's Understood. True. Thank you. So yeah, we're just talking about the Older Testament, not the New. The New Testament has a comparable word, uh -huh. but it's, it being a Greek word, it has a more precise meaning. This word has no precise meaning. It just says... It happens that there was an action. An action happened, and the context tells you what it is. For instance, in this case, it says, and it happened, colon, the sons of God saw the daughters of men. See? Like that. Yeah, I see that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I wanted to add, too, uh, Brent and audience, it seems to me I remember in some of that information on the, the large skeletons, that back in the 1800s, there was one on display at a museum at Niagara Falls. Uh-huh. A, a, a large skeleton? A whole skeleton in some museum there or some attraction or something around Niagara Falls. Uh, 
just the things I picked up over the years. And, uh, yeah, there's no doubt that they were around. They found huge mounds of them out, all through the Midwest. Yeah. Now, when the Romans first arrived at Britain, that was Julius Caesar led the first, what was a, more like an intelligence gathering move at first, but then it became, it became a, a time they came to stay. They did that later, but the historians talk of giants being seen there. Giants, that means big, they meant big people. Giant means earthborn, but uh, big men, big men. Now, there were big men in the north of Britain, still are. You know, like Larry Bird's, Larry Bird's ancestry came from that part of the world. And that people from the north of the island of Britain, there's some, well, <laughs> I tell people, there are two kind of Scottish people. They're the, they're the short ones and the tall ones, and that's really true. And uh, some Scottish people are very short. You know, what was the name of the Scottish fellow that immigrated to America and became the richest man in the world? Uh, uh, Carnegie. Uh, yeah, Carnegie. He was uh, he was from Scotland. He was uh, he was from a short family because he was a short man. He was right. a short Scotsman. But there are some Scotsmen that are very very tall, and some families over there are. They're the ones, you know, William Wallace. William Wallace was six feet ten inches tall. Whoa. Six feet ten. He was a brute. And that's why he was able to do, he said he could take his claymore and split a man from the crown of his head to his crotch with one blow. I can imagine. (laughs) After After they killed him, they drew and quartered him. Yep. And paraded all four parts of his body around England so everybody could see it. Yeah, that was uh, that was the law. That's just what the law demanded. And uh, I say the law. No, the law didn't demand it. The fault. It was a false law. But that law came to America. Remember when the when uh, the <clears throat> British officer Ferguson uh, sent a letter across the mountains to the over mountain men in North Carolina. They, they went over the mountains, and the king said, I don't want you going over the mountains. You're not allowed to go over there. And he sent him a letter said, come back. And if you don't come back, I'm coming after you, and you'll be hung, drawn. That means cut into body parts and quartered. And when they quarter a fellow, then they'd send the body parts around so everybody could see them to know that you were dead. They did the same, they did the same thing way back. At the beginning of Babylon, when Nimrod was in Babylon, he became the world's first emperor. He built the city, the law of the city, and his first organization there. And Shem, remember there were uh, Shem, uh, there were three sons of Noah, right? And we got this right? Yeah. Uh, Ham, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And uh, Nimrod was a contemporary of Shem. And Shem, of course, lived several hundred years. Legend has it that he heard what Nimrod was doing, and it was so decrepit, so abominable, that he pounded his fist down and said, we've got to do something to stop him. And so they went, and they kidnapped him, and they killed him. And they cut his body into parts and sent parts around Babylon to prove to everybody that he was dead. And his mother, Semiramis, saw that as political opportunity. She didn't want to lose power. 
And she started promoting the idea that he had died and gone to heaven. And then from heaven, he sent a sunbeam to impregnate her and did impregnate her. And she gave birth to him again. And therein is the cult of the mother child today called Mariolatry. Mariolatry, the worship of Mary, the veneration of Mary, arose from the attempt of the evil one himself to counterfeit the virgin birth through Semiramis at Babylon. Uh, the, a child conceived from the heaven, from the sky, who was born of a woman. Well, the, the true Messiah was conceived of the spirit from the sky and born of a woman. But nobody else has been. And there have been a lot of counterfeits since then. You know, even the Japs, the Japanese emperor who died during the presidency of Ronald Reagan, him and all the Japanese people said that he was 142nd generation from the sun. He was a, a descendant of a sunbeam who impregnated a woman. You see the, the parallel there? Same thing in Egypt. The Pharaoh of Egypt said that he was conceived of the sun. And he was half half heavenly body and half man. Skions of Babylonianism and the cult of Mariolatry. The cult, the cult archaeologists call it the cult of the woman child. But it's from Babylon and uh, Rome picked up on it and found it's very effective. People like it, obviously. Keeps a lot of them under submission and under demonism. Back to you, Roger. Well, all right, hold on. Somebody else. Boy, you're assimilating there, Roger. I, I did hear on John Fredericks on War Room this morning that they had termed, since the uh, WHO had clarified in the CDC that there was no basis for masks, that if you're wearing a mask, you're a science denier. <laughs> okay. Ah, um, uh, here he comes. Here he comes now. <laughs> Well, doggone it, you sent me scurrying to the bookshelves, and I spent uh, 15 minutes or so scurrying around with a flashlight looking for this book. And I've got it in my hand, and now you're going to hear about it, like it or not. <laughs> Hope you're all standing by, have a nice cup of coffee or something, put your feet in the air. But I have in my hot little hands here a book titled The Hidden History of the Human Race by Michael A. Cremo and Richard L. Thompson. And I, I don't know how long ago I bought this and read it, but it was intensely interesting. But what was really interesting to me about it, uh, it was dedicated to his Divine Grace, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. <laughs> and it has uh, some phrase here in anglicized, uh, I don't know. Uh, but I was wondering, what is he doing in it? We see he is of the uh, 
religious persuasion of Hinduism and and Cremo is and he believes in reincarnation so he believes in this millions of years stuff and uh, so you have to uh, you, you have to understand that while you're reading the book but he what he does is he goes in and catalogs all the evidence and he tells the stories about all these archaeological discoveries that were not in keeping with the Darwinian cult and they've been put on the back shelf they've been put in the trash bin um, but he's got them all listed in uh, by either the archaeological period you know that little clever idea or by the millions of years since uh, the site was uh, supposedly you know anyhow um, he goes on there are just dozens and dozens and dozens of these things that uh, has six eight, I mean this goes on for pages just a list of all these sites and he goes into great detail. The man is telling the truth. And, uh, and he, he uh, demonstrates that they, the archaeological, the, or shall we say, the, the inner circle of archaeology excludes what it wants from the record and includes what it wants for the record. And the criteria that they use to disallow or invalidate certain discoveries are exactly the criteria that would invalidate all of their discoveries. But it is, you know, if anyone wants to get down and have uh, incredibly detailed information about archaeology and how corrupt it is, how much has been hidden from our eyes and our books. This is a good book. And again, it's called The Hidden History of the Human Race. And I don't know what possessed me to buy and read the book, but I did. And it is, yeah. I can see my footprints going back through the book. Well, uh, you know, of uh, the modern-day archaeologists, the, the one that's accessible that I'm very impressed with, there are a lot of other people in the audience, too. You can go on YouTube, and it's, he's got a channel, and his name is Robert Seffer, S-E-P-E-H-R. That's the way it's spelled, Seffer. And he goes into a lot of this stuff, um, you know, the, the mummies of the Egyptians have got more British genes in them than they do anything in Africa. Oh, really? Oh, oh well, yeah. No, they, they, yeah but no, those people were not uh, sub-Saharan Africans. No. God, they got all uh, kinds of the same uh, genes in them that the Brits have, evidently. So he goes into a lot of that stuff, a lot of the where uh, our race came from and origins and all that stuff. And uh, one of the ant alt archaeologist robert seffer s-e-p-e-h-r excellent resource very entertaining good stuff too so anyway just wanted to inject that 
Roger? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's a Samuel. Um, one of my favorite Sephir ones uh, that blows me away is the Vikings in Patagonia in, in around, uh, what, uh, 1100? And if they were there for probably, he said, two to three hundred years, and they were protecting something of value to them, and that they found more ruined stones in that area than in all of Scandinavia, and they found like two or three hundred dogs that were only from the Scandinavian area that were mummified there. Is that that's right? That's in Patagonia you're talking about. Now, that's where I used to live in the upper reaches of Patagonia. Yeah. It's an awesome one, I did, but huh. I thought you might want to check that out. I have not seen it. If you if you could locate that and shoot it to me, I'd appreciate it. Sammy, you're real good at sending me stuff. Okay. I, I also remember reading about it may be in this book, but I'll I'll I can't quickly check uh, about stones that were carved like the sailors uh, in the day in the age of sail. The sailors would carve whale bone, whale teeth, and the like, uh, and they. They call that scrimshaw. Right. Right? Right. And these rocks were carved like that with various images, and some of the images were of men riding dinosaurs of recognized uh, varieties. Yeah. Uh, like plesiosaur. And... And so, did man live at the same time as the dinosaurs? Well seems to indicate that uh, someone someone was posing for a picture you know how did it how did they get so accurate about the shape of that particular dinosaur and with a man riding astride its back quite uh, yeah, there are too many anomalies uh, they're just too many so Sir Flinders Petrie, back in 1921, let's see, oh, maybe 1917, I forget, but he was the, he was the recognized archaeologist from Britain. He was in the British Archaeological Society and probably best known of all of them. He delivered a paper. Now, no, it's coming to me. I believe it was November 1917 he delivered a paper the British Archaeological Society and he said I don't understand why in our day we have relegated to the dustbin of uselessness the chronicles of the kings of Iceland Norway Denmark Ireland and Saxony I think I got most of them. It's a well-known document, and it has uh, been thought to be reliable during the time of the Reformation, back in the 1600s and the 1500s. The people in Britain took it to be truth. And there are so many copies of it from the different, different people groups, from Ireland to Iceland to Norway to Sweden to Denmark, all have their different versions and they have gaps. There's gaps in them. 
But when you lay them side by side, the gaps all fill in from each one of them, and it all makes sense. And what it does is it takes the kings of these peoples, and it gives their genealogies going back to a fellow by the name of Odin, O-D-I-N, which our, our day of the week Wednesday is named after Odin. We say Wednesday, but that's really the old name Odin. Well, according to the Chronicles, and this is Sir Flinders Petrie saying this, he was the one that discovered, was he the one that discovered King the King Tut tomb? I don't remember. He made a lot of big discoveries. but That was Carter. That's right. That was Carter. I'm glad you said that. Well, Petrie's was a big shot, but he said this is a reliable set of documents, and it takes the ancestry of these kings back to Odin, and Odin was, I believe, 14 generations from Noah through a son. This is according to the Chronicle. Through a son that was born, that was born after Noah exited the ark. As Mrs. Noah bore a son, and his name was Sheep. S-H-E-A-F is the way people spell it, that, that uh, study it. But he said, all oh, this is reliable. And it's not that, it's not that uh, there's not good history outside the Bible. Again, facts are facts. And if something is there, the evidence that we have of it doesn't mean anything. And if it does mean anything, that there are giants in the earth, for instance, well, what what does the Bible have to say about that? Of course, when it comes to what we call giants, giantus, um, earth-born creatures, or not earth-born, but, uh, well, they're born from from these mighty men, these men of old. No, not the mighty. Yeah, they are. They would be descended from the mighty men, the sons of God, the fallen angels that came and, and intermingled in the stream of human blood. What does that mean? I don't know. That's why I bring it up. You're, you're commenting about it. I appreciate it. Back Can I uh, bring a little something up, Brent? Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Well, when we look at Schweitzer land, or Switzerland as we call it today, because there was no W in the Germanic tongue, and we look at the Vikings, or the kings of the six-point star, uh, I can't overlook that there could be some significant relations that are material to the placing of the VI together in a number of our so-called Americanized Anglish English language. And I think that there's relative in, uh, operations that occur there that suggest that there's a deeper hidden history that may go back to some of those Nordic or Germanic tribes that you're talking about and the significance that's been hidden away from us. Oh, well, I think it is being hidden. Well, that's what Flinders Petrie was saying. He said, why is it nobody's talking about this anymore when just a few centuries ago, everybody on the island here accepted it as historic fact? Depends upon what the academic community wants to accept as historic fact, I suppose. But it comes down to, again, it doesn't come down to logic as much as it does fact. And that's where we get balled up. We get to thinking too much instead of just saying, well, there it is. What are you going to do with it? If it's there, it's there. I was <laughs> driving through Texas, and I forget where this is, but I went right through the town where that 
those uh, fossil footprints are right outside of town in that in that uh, dry wash bed, or it's got water in it some of the year, and that footprints of a man, and right beside are footprints, large footprints of a dinosaur. That has happened in other places as well, including in Turkey. Uh-huh. And uh, that was reported in 1983 in the Moscow News. And uh, I just happened to be looking at that as you said it. Uh, it says, intriguing report on what appeared to be a human footprint in 150 million year old Jurassic rock next to a giant three toed dinosaur footprint. The discovery occurred in the Turkmen Republic in what was then the southeastern USSR. Professor so-and-so, corresponding member of the Turkmen SSR Academy of Sciences, said that although the print resembled a human footprint, there was no conclusive proof that it was made by a human being. Yeah, we didn't see him make it. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's consistent. All right, I got another story for you about that, too. This discovery has not received much attention, but then given the current mindset of the scientific community, such neglect is to be expected. We only know of a few cases of such extremely anomalous discoveries. But considering that many such discoveries probably go unreported, we wonder how many there actually might be. Well, on the page before, he's talking about these, uh, these prints in Kentucky. Uh, it says uh, uh, 37 million years ago. It was not until about 4 million years ago. Now, this guy accepts the, the millions and millions of years story. So, uh, nevertheless, his information, when properly interpreted, is very useful. If only to discredit the so-called scientists who conduct no science, uh, no scientific experiments. And if you don't experiment, you're not a scientist. If you don't collect data, you're not a scientist. If you don't analyze the data and report the uh, apparent uh, suggestions of that data, you're not a scientist. So these people who call themselves scientists are 95% frauds, in my humble estimation. It ain't humble. Anyhow, this is a fellow... It says, Burroughs stated, each footprint has five toes and a distinct arch. The toes are spread apart like those of a human being who has never worn shoes. Given more details about the prints, Burroughs stated, the foot curves back like a human foot to a human appearing heel. David Bushnell, an ethnologist, now here we go, here we go, Smithsonian, you know, uh -huh. An ethnologist with the Smithsonian Institution suggested the prints were carved by Indians. In ruling out this hypothesis, Dr. Burroughs used a microscope to study the prints and noted that the sand grains within the tracks are closer together than the sand grains of the rock just outside the tracks due to the pressure of the creature's feet. Uh -huh. The sandstone adjacent to many of the tracks is uproll due to the damp. Anyhow, they went ahead and investigated, and according to uh, sculptors, uh, a uh, Kent Previet, uh, uh, who was consulted by Burroughs in 1953, said, the sculptor said that in carving 
in that kind of sandstone or the carving carving in that sandstone could not have been done without leaving artificial marks and so these people in the smithsonian and these other uh large organizations that push the uh the evolution story and the millions of years fantasy uh they stick together and they will cover up and they will lie and uh and they're hideous and you mentioned one other thing you asked about the the uh tomb of tutankhamun uh -huh. and carter yeah. I have I have held in my hot little hands a scarab. For those that don't know, it's a beetle, an image of a beetle uh -huh. carved in stone that came from the tomb of Tutankhamun. Most unusual story ever. I went to a little school in Atlanta, a little college in Atlanta, Oglethorpe okay. College, uh -huh. and we had a, a professor who taught music mm -hmm. music appreciation primarily mm -hmm. and he was a little short guy you know i mean five six maybe at the most mm -hmm. he always wore the same suit i don't yeah. think he i don't think he ever bathed he had one tooth in his head on the lower on the front left of his jaw uh, -huh. uh and uh he was a congenial fellow, very, con very much, but he always had uh, a significant body odor, <laughs> and he lived in the men's dormitory up in the attic above the dormitory rooms, uh -huh. and, and he maintained uh, a large uh, herd, shall we say, of cats. He loved his cats. Well... It turned out, in the early part of the 1900s, he had been a very wealthy man. And his father had been extremely wealthy. And a friend of the archaeologist, Carter. There were 12 scarabs found in the, the tomb of King Tut. The scarabs were carved on their belly their flat belly with hieroglyphics. And that was the seal of, uh, of a, an Egyptian priest. Uh -huh. They used that to stamp documents for, to show taxes were paid or whatever else had to be done. Any document that was to be made official was stamped with a scarab from one of these priests. And, of course, they would ink the belly and then press it, just like we would. And uh, there were 12 scarabs found, 10 are in the museum in Cairo, and one of them was owned by this little apparent... I mean, this guy, if you stand him out on the, the, the street, he looks like a typical homeless guy. Yeah. I mean, really and truly, he owned one of the two scarabs that was not in the museum in Cairo. And he would pass it to around each of his classes to let the students hold it. Mm -hmm. He had studied music uh, in particular. He had studied Bach in Europe, in Germany, mm -hmm. for decades. Well, anyhow, when 
when the Great Depression hit, Harry Dobson lost all his money. And he said, my friends were jumping out of hotel windows. They had lost everything and they could not face life as ordinary humans who had to work for a living. He said, instead, I just threw myself a, a going away party. So I, guess he, yeah. I guess he left the hotel with the bill. I don't know. Uh -huh. I never asked that. But he was, you had this little dirty old man who smelled bad, uh -huh. but was congenial. And when he stood up to lecture, he was transformed or transmogrified right uh -huh. there in front of your eyes into a prince. He was the most magnificent lecturer, and he had things to teach that no one else had. Yeah. He would, he would show you the relationship between music and architecture. Uh -huh. But, I mean, it, he, he, he was a magnificent repository of, of really what I thought was important knowledge. He was a delightful fellow, but I actually held a scarab from the, king, the tomb of King Tut. Harvey, you know who that really reminds me of when you're talking about this guy is John Benson. Oh, yeah. Okay, now, Harvey, for the audience, John and Harvey uh, knew each other and spoke quite a bit about health and yeah. stuff. And, uh, but that was the most amazing thing to me was John, this, like you say, pass him on the street, you never know any difference. He's kind of a short, diminutive, portly kind of guy. Yeah. And he'd get up there on stage talking about this law stuff, and he, he might as well have ripped his shirt off and had a big Superman uh, emblem on his chest. And the guy was incredible. Yeah. And what you just said about your fellow really reminded me of that, brought it yeah. back starkly. It's just, uh, you know, you meet one or two people like that in your lifetime. If you're lucky. Yeah. If you're lucky. That's right. So I've included him in, uh, I've, I've moved him to a different setting slightly, but uh, I included Harry Dobson uh, in a novel I'm working on. <laughs> um, listen, we got it. I'm going to give you the uh, courtesy, Brent. We got a little bit of time left today of going into if there's anybody that doesn't know how to get more Brent winners. I doubt that's in our audience, but just in case, I'd love for you to tell them how to hook up with you and everything you got to offer. Thank you, Roger. Go to commonlawyer.com, www.commonlawyer.com. You can see how to join us on. Sunday mornings for church, we're going through the book of Genesis. And then on Saturday mornings, you can join us too. And I'm going to go, I'm going to start. We've got two hours each of those days. I want to use an hour on Saturday to, to talk about going through the Newer Testament and talk about Matthew. Not the whole two hours, but an hour anyway. And that's the most important thing you can do is put the Word of God out. That's what has the power in it. To, to change people's lives, get them to see straight. Well, we're doing that on Saturday and Sunday. You can see that at commonlayer.com. And then you can also see there how to obtain the, the, the winterized Bible 
over 15,000 footnotes throughout the 66 books of the Bible, the text of the 66 books, and 125 now appendices, uh, tracing major themes through the Bible, words, a lot of words there to talk about. And uh, you can also get the book, Excellence of the Common Law, comparative law text of 958 pages, and a lot of other smaller books on important subjects that are practical, uh, the right to remain silent, the history of it, and how to use it, and the jury, the history of the jury, and how that came about in our common law tradition, cross-examination, all those kind of things. And you can listen to me. Uh, you can listen to me. I think there's a couple of hundred uh, clips there on the website, commonlawyer.com. Thank you, Roger. Brent, I just can't tell you how much I look forward to these shows on Friday, and they always wrap up the week so nicely, and the audience is always loves these programs, and we sure appreciate everything you bring us and helping to connect the dots and maybe help us get a little sanity here. This whole thing's a spiritual battle, as we all know, okay? Oh, and that's true, Roger. Yeah, it, it, it truly is. And these guys have gone to great lengths to try and wipe all these things that we've talked about today. They've tried to wipe that out of everybody's availability and consciousness. Okay. Roger, and, I forgot to mention one thing, if you'll let me. Yeah, you better do it quick. Okay, real quick. You can join us for a law class at Winter's End on Saturday afternoons. Go to commonlayer.com for going through the law of trusts and... Uh, that's about yeah. uh, four, 4 o'clock in the evening. Go ahead. We're 